Welcome to Protected, Adolescence and Contraception, a Team Peds Talks podcast series brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. Access to contraception and reproductive care is an essential aspect of adolescent-friendly health care services and to preventing teen pregnancy, sexually transmitted infections, and more. Yet many teens face significant barriers. This podcast series is a call to action for pediatric-focused clinicians who can contribute significantly to increasing access for this important aspect of adolescent healthcare. The focus of this series is to address multiple aspects of contraceptive care, from confidentiality to various available methods, and to provide clinical pearls to help improve access for adolescents regardless of setting. Each guest is most knowledgeable about the laws and policies of their own state and has brought this viewpoint into their conversation. It is important to maintain knowledge of your own local, state, and federal laws that relate to the provision of reproductive health services for adolescents. My name is Allison Moriarty-Daly. I am an adolescent clinician and have spent nearly 30 years providing reproductive care to teens within primary care settings and educating nurse practitioner students to care for this population. The idea for this podcast series came from recent work on a collaborative project for NAPNAP that addressed reproductive access for adolescents. We felt that this series could help provide education to other nurse practitioners to help remove existing barriers and improve clinical care in this area. I have had the pleasure of speaking to many adolescent experts on a wide variety of topics. I hope you enjoy this series and I welcome you to contact me with additional ideas for future episodes. This has been an exciting journey. Let's talk about it. Welcome to this episode. Joining me today is Dr. Naomi Shapiro, who is a pediatric nurse practitioner and professor emerita of nursing at the University of California, San Francisco. She has over 25 years experience delivering full scope pediatric and adolescent primary care in school-based and other settings. Most recently with the La Clinica de la Raza in California, she has written extensively on the impact of legal decisions and electronic health records on adolescents' rights to consent and confidentiality. And she is joined by Erin Kramer. Erin Kramer is a family nurse practitioner at La Clinica de la Raza in Oakland, California. She has been in practice for 15 years working in adolescent reproductive health. She trains providers on long-acting reversible contraceptives with a focus on adolescents and young adult populations and has developed a LARC doula curriculum for medical assistants and health educators. And we are going to discuss the landscape of contraception for adolescents and influences that we've all experienced on accessibility, um, taking care of teens in a variety of different settings. So welcome. It's great that you joined me today. Thank you. Thank you, Allison. So I think the first question I'd like to ask you both is how, over the course of your careers, which have been quite substantial working with teenagers, how has the landscape of contraception changed over the course of your career? Well, okay, I can, I can start. You know, I've been a nurse for a pretty long time. I became a nurse practitioner in the mid-1990s. And when I was in school, I sort of did every adolescent rotation I could in my PNP program. So um, I was, you know, came out and began to deliver contraception. And at that time, we were not putting IUDs in teenagers. Um, you know, I just have to say, as a backstory, when I was a nursing student in the 70s, um, was right when the copper T came out, the, co the copper IUD. Mm -hmm. And um, all of us nursing students who 
wanted contraception, the time were flocking to the clinic to get the copper tea. So wow. it was, but there was a moment when it was fine for young women who had never had babies, but you know, and we're back there again. But when I started, really the options were birth control pills and depo primarily. Um, and then more plant was sort of in and out for a brief period. How about you, Erin? Yeah, so um, I, I, you know, entered this the scene of adolescent reproductive medicine a, a slightly later than Naomi, but um, I've been in doing this work for about 15 years now. And, um, you know, when I started, um, you know, Nexplanon and IUDs really were coming out as, um, as really safe, effective methods for adolescents. Um, but really, there was this um, thought, uh, you know, with American College of Pediatrics, American College of Gynecology, that it was really LARCs first. Mm -hmm. They were the most effective method. And um, we would offer them to our patients first before any other method. And I think what I've seen, um, particularly in the last um, several years, is um, a, a little bit more for the respect for the adolescent's right to choose um, or decline any method of uh, reversible contraceptive. And that um, we've been taking a, a larger look at um, using a reproductive justice framework for contraceptive counseling and, um, and using that to provide more equitable you know, healthcare for adolescents and more comprehensive care, um, really highlighting that you know, adolescents are experts in their own lives. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit more about that reproductive, reproductive justice model and what's included in that, what providers need to know in order to integrate that um, into their practices? We acknowledge that there's been an extensive promotion of LARCs, and um, it definitely has included some coercive practices that inhibit a patient's like reproductive autonomy, um, particularly in marginalized, disadvantaged, and excluded populations. Um, and many of these um, communities have also had a history of like sterilization abuse, particularly in communities of color, um, low-income, uninsured women, um, incarcerated women, women with disabilities. Um, and so it's very important to understand that that's the context um, in, the, uh, in the world that we're living in when we present um, LARCs or present reproductive contraceptive choices to our patients. Um, and uh, the National Women's Health Network and Sister Song, which is the Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, came out with a, a joint statement of principles on LARCs um, that talk a lot about how patients have the right to choose, um, you know, any birth control or not to choose any birth control free of persuasion. Um, they talk about their rights of, uh, of patients to get um, any birth control um, or to remove any birth control without judgment or resistance from their providers. Um, and uh, they talk a lot about uh, contraceptive as part of a, you know, healthy sex life beyond uh, fear of pregnancy. So identifying that there are non-contraceptive benefits or reasons that um, individuals may seek these methods. Um, and they have a long, long list <laughs> of other, um, you know, uh, 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 ways, things that they support surrounding this. And uh, Naomi, I'm not sure if you, if you have other thoughts or other, or other things you wanted to share here. Yeah, I did want to say kind of more from the... Um, thinking about being in the exam room with the teen and talking to them about birth control. I, one of the things that was a surprise to me when I started providing care 
to a lot of diverse adolescents is that how many of them actually wanted to, to consult with their mother about um, or, or the or their mother, their grandmother, whoever the, the kind of primary woman caretaker was in their life um, about the method of birth control, often to the point where we'd be having a three way discussion on the cell phone with the with the parent or the grandparent. And that's where a lot of these issues also came up, because even if they weren't issues for the teen, particularly, they were definitely issues for the parent or grandparent. And so I thought, so, you know, I've really had to think a lot about how to talk about that. And I think what um, Aaron talked about the non-contraceptive benefits are really, it's really important to find out, like, aside from what you want in a birth control method, what else is going on? You know, how are your periods? Do you want to have periods? Do you not want to have periods? How's your, you know, how is your skin? How's your acne? You know, because we know, for example, that um, the progesterone containing, to some extent, the um, depo, and surprisingly, uh, to a large extent, the progesterone containing IUDs, even though the dose is very low, can in some teens can really flare up their acne in a major way. So we, we kind of want to talk about that with them, you know, just before, you know, as they're coming to a decision so they can really be thinking about it more holistically. So for clinicians who are integrating contraception into their practices, what are some, some practical approaches um, to making sure that we're giving true options counseling um, to teens about contraception? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, just to just to even state it one more time, I think that it's really important to recognize that the adolescent is the expert in their own life. And then it's never about you or about you as a provider um, or what you think is best for the patient. I think that often I, I train providers who are, you know, seeing a patient in for plan B, plan B, plan B, and then you have some kind of connotation about what you think is best for that patient when they come in to your visit. It's important to really recognize that you are just meeting the patient, you know, where where they are mm -hmm. and giving them that full spectrum of contraceptive um, care and really just to like uphold their autonomy, right? So I often say to patients and I would I would encourage other providers to say to their adolescent patients that you are in charge of your reproductive health and I'm here to just support that decision. And um, particularly when putting in um, a LARC, I always counsel um, providers to talk to, um, to their patients about how they can dis um, discontinue that method when they want. So they really feel they have a lot of autonomy and they're able to understand that they have control to decide when that is. There's another thing that I sort of learned along the way, uh, and this is especially I think helpful with older teens, but sometimes with younger teens, um, is a lot of the teens that I've seen, especially who are on um, easy to discontinue methods, you know, like birth control pills or depot where they just stop taking them or they don't come in for their refill, um, is uh, teens will say, well, you know, I was in a relationship, but now I'm not, so I don't need to be on it. And so I, and I think that there's a lot of sort of built in kind of shame about having sex anyway. And, you know, like, okay, so I shouldn't be on birth control while I'm not in a relationship. And so I asked them to think about, I said, you know, I'm not assuming that you want to have a child, but I'm just wondering if you are thinking about having children at some point, like when that might be in your life, you know, and, and often it's, you know, I want to go through college or I want to be older. I want to be making good money, stuff like that. And so I say, you know, sometimes I think about birth control, not so much about tied to the relationship and whether you're in one or not, but 
you know, as kind of an insurance plan that you can do what you want with your life. And that if you're not in a relationship and you meet somebody special and things start happening, you know, that you know that you're protected um, against pregnancy if you're not ready for it. And so often that doesn't like happen right away, but over time teens will come in and say, yeah, I thought about that. And now I think I really, you know, I really want to go to college. I think I do want to go on something that lasts longer. And they want to have that kind of backup just in case or. Yeah. 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 And, mm-hmm. but it's also, they've been, they're making decisions as Aaron was saying about their lives. And this is them making some decisions. You know, some of the will say, I'm ready anytime, mm-hmm. you know, and then that's fine. It's good for us to know that. Yeah. I think similarly, Naomi, um, one thing that I, I find is so important to counsel our patients on is, is to have these conversations before they're sexually active or to have these conversations during their well-child visits, um, you know, even at a younger age. Um, to, to and, and there are a lot of things that, that you can have as a conversation. You can talk about gender now. You can talk about sexuality, attraction, um, and explore those topics as a younger teen and also give them a lot of context for their rights um, as adolescents if they're in a state that has um, confidentiality laws that protects a, 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 their their um, their ability to talk to a provider without um, their parents in the room and to be able to access reproductive services because it really opens the door. It allows you to like continue, establish that rapport when they're young and also continue the conversation as it evolves and they get older, um, I think can be very, very valuable. Do you think it's some, I would imagine that if conversations are brought up over and over again, right, that teenagers kind of anticipate that too. So there's Mm -hmm. some comfort in that, that I won't have to actually ask for it. Like the provider is going to say, you know, what are you thinking about contraception? Or do you think you need an STI test or whatever it is? If it's part of your normal interaction with them at whatever visit point, um, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I think it's very important. I also think sometimes with younger teens, I've ended up having these conversations in um, urgent care visits, which had nothing to do. You know, I, I have this sort of, I think it's this prototype of teens who come in with like the world's most minimal sore throat or cold. Like there's really, you can't find anything wrong with them, but really they were trying to, you know, and the parent would say like, I don't, she doesn't seem that sick, but she's just insisting that she wants to talk to you so and see you. So, you know, and then so I've, I've learned to just ask at least briefly when we're alone, just like, so, you know, are you having sex or coming close to it or whatever, however it's phrased? And they'll just go, yeah, I don't need to get on birth control. And that was their way to come in. So I just try to be open to, you know, this coming up at any point in any kind of visit. And also paying attention to any symptom that could possibly be related, right? Like well, I'm yeah. always thinking about stomach aches or, you know, sore throats or whatever yeah. else and saying, well, is yeah. there anything else going on yeah. that you want to talk about? Or yeah. Um, yeah, is there anything that you need that we've talked about in the past? Or let me give you a menu of items that, you know, we do, we take care of here. If you want, you want to talk about those more. That's really great. What has your experience been with what, what teenagers choose as far as contraceptive options? And has that changed at all over the years? I think there's a perception potentially right now that, you know, most teenagers are choosing uh, LARCs. Hmm. Erin, you're kind of more in the mix of it. I I actually don't, I don't 
really find that to be the case so much. I do think, and, and, I, and I can talk about this a little bit more, I think that there is some anxiety and fear surrounding um, LARCs and LARC procedures in this population. And some of that inhibits um, a teenager's desire to choose that method. So I think of often pills, are remain the most popular choice that um that's in my practice in Oakland um and I find um you know there's a, a wide range of other methods like that are secondary um you know lots of people are interested in patch and um and the the depot I think that in this population it's really important important for a lot of patients to have a hidden method um, or a method that's not um, visible. So often depo is very good for that or pills if they can hide it from parents, um, things like that often, um, you know, are, are more desirable. I would have to, I mean, I think my practice, I would have to agree to, I think the pills and depo are two, the, the prime candidates. Uh, very few of my patients want the ring. Um, that also, you know, it probably has to do with a lot of other things like they don't use tampons either. So, you know, thinking about a ring is, you know, kind of hard probably for many of them. Um, occasionally the patch, but they're petrified. Someone's going to see it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, there are there are patients that elect to have um, either the implant or the IUC. For me, at least, those tend to be older patients. Um I think that's a, the prime time is kind of senior year to going off to college is when they seem to do that. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, I would think I have a fair number of patients that kind of try things out for a while and see if they like them and go back to something else or, you know, maybe forgot to get their depot and then call and want to go on pills until their next, you know, there's a lot of combinations, but being open to that, I think is really es essential. Um, how has access changed, do you think, for teenagers over the years? Do you think it's well, improved? It's gotten worse. I mean, and I, I think in our settings, you know, in school-based health, it's improved where we are. And so we're in, you know, we're in Northern California, um, and we're in a clinic that has uh, kind of a has a for sort of a pharmacy license and gets very, you know, it's on a federal program because it's a federally qualified health center to get really cheap medicine. So I'm, the reason I'm saying that is that um, I found as uh, you know, as our, my career progressed, that I was writing fewer and fewer prescriptions and giving more and more packs of pills um, out to teens. And that's partly because of electronic records um, and the fact that we could really no longer prescribe uh, birth control pills um, or the patch or the ring confidentially to them through the electronic record system because it just seemed like almost dead certain that they would be in some kind of similar system as their parent and the parent would get the phone call that, you know, your birth, the birth controls or pills are ready for your daughter. <laughs> just like, you know, and um, without even the pharmacist really wanting to do that, it just was like built into the system. Mm -hmm. So we've, so in some ways it's become more available because they could walk out with a pack of pills that day or we, they could walk out. And I know Aaron, you might want to talk about, you know, your, your work to train us all to be able to provide LARCs so that people could try, really get same day access to LARCs if they wanted them. That would yeah. Be yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I do a lot of provider training for LARCs and there's a lot of organizations that do. We do it internally within our organization 
But um, there are, you know, lots of places across this country that um, sort of centralize the training. And, um, you know, I, I really think that, um, that access has improved when um, providers are trained in the full spectrum of contraceptive care. So, um, you know, reducing any barriers to that by having the providers that you see, let's say, Naomi, within a school-based health center, being able to offer all of the methods is one way to really, you know, increase access. Um, are there any other things that you can think of that really impact access? I mean, right now, um, telemedicine has been a, a game changer in this space. Um, we are able to reach teens over the phone and do a lot of follow-up and a lot of counseling. Um, and this is particularly true if you're not within a school-based health center. So I often train pediatricians and, and, and family providers to, um, you know, have these conversations as part of their shades or heads workup to discuss sexuality and gender and remind um, patients that they, you know, can access them over the phone or via video. And it's a way for teenagers who do not have a driver's license and do not have a way to often get to a clinic or their doctor's um, office on their own. It's a way for them to access their providers in a confidential space so that they can call that office and say, I want an appointment with my provider to talk about this um, and continue to have those conversations. So I would encourage providers to say that during those visits to say, hey, listen, sounds like you're not sexually active now or you're not with a partner right now. Um, if that changes and you want to talk to me, um, this these are the ways to set up a telemedicine um, appointment. Naomi, I know you're an expert in this um, topic, but can you talk a little bit about how recent health law changes are impacting uh, teenagers' potential access to contraceptive methods across the country? Yeah, and I could talk about two things, and one of them is the just electronic health records, mm -hmm. but the other thing is I want to talk about um, Title X um, and its ability to provide contraception across the country and then net recent legal challenges okay, to Title X. Yeah, okay. So um, the first thing is that uh, there was an act called the 20th Century Cures Act that passed a while ago, but it took until sort of the end of the Trump administration for all the, the kind of regulations that are written up about how to implement the law came out. And the purpose of this law was really to make medical records accessible to every patient, which is really great, and also to make it easy for you know, specialists and primary care providers to communicate with each other, say this patient had cancer or something, and everybody could get the records. Um, and also that patients could get into a portal easily and get all of their records, which, you know, is really fabulous in many ways. But it was really about open access for adults, and it was about really facilitating research and other kinds of um, probably billing <laughs> and things like that. So people didn't really think one way or the other about teenagers when they wrote this law. And so there really aren't provisions particularly for um, confidentiality. So, um, but the idea was that the adolescents um, in states that allow confidentiality, you know, from a say 12 on up, adolescents could sign up for their own portal um, and get uh, information confidentially. And that in some states like ours, theoretically in California, there's certain information that's no longer available to a parent once their kid hits 12. However, we've learned that practically, um, 
uh, you know, one research study at, at I think Stanford showed that 50% of the uh, registrations for the adolescent confidential portal was after the parent's email. So, and then um, there are lots of other ways, even if you think that you're writing a confidential note, and you, you make some certain provisions, the medications and the problem list are actually open to the parent. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's really no way to say prescribe uh, birth control on the electronic record uh, and have the parent not know about that. Um, you know, you can hide the visit notes for that, but it's going to come up someplace. So this is really problematic. Um, so that's the, and, and I think that's where we started actually, you know, basically giving teens birth control pills. Um, and, you know, and if they weren't a patient of La Clinica, um, except for the school-based health center, the parent really wouldn't have access um, to their records. But, um, but it's, it's really problematic. And I think, you know, every time we think we've gotten the system figured out, the records upgrade, people change providers for the records. So, it, you know, it's, it's really, really difficult in that way. And the second thing is that, um, so in 1970, uh, and this was actually under the Nixon administration, so a Republican administration, this law passed that was like really uncontroversial, had support across the political spectrum called Title 10, and it was part of the Public Health Act, and it gave basically free birth control and STD treatments and testing to everyone who was poor. Um, and and uh, that included adolescents. And uh, if you were a clinic and you got funding through Title 10, you actually had to abide by federal confidentiality laws, which basically gave adolescents 12 and up, you know, the right to get this confidential care, even if the state didn't otherwise allow it. And so that's been really kind of baked into the law forever. Now, there, there've been a lot of ins and outs of the law getting more restrictive or less restrictive, and I won't go into all that now, but just say, to say that this confidentiality was always there until very recently. And what happened was that a lawsuit was filed in Texas uh, challenging this, you know, under like the guise of parents' rights. So challenging the right of adolescents to receive this confidential care and it's making its way through the courts. But unfortunately, uh, the ruling came down that, that until it made its way through the courts, um, this provision allowing confidential care, say in Texas, which is I think where the suit was filed and other places where it's not allowed um, has to be on pause, even if it's Title X funded. So this is really a great blow to the rights of teenagers to access confidential care across the country um, in states that otherwise would not allow that. Thank you. And we know that, and we know that, you know, about all of us, all states, all states do allow teens to get uh, STI testing and treatment, although some states do kind of recommend that the provider tell the parents about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but only about half the states really allow confidential care um, for birth control. So given all of that, what do you feel the role of pediatric nurse practitioners and pediatric focused nurse, uh, nurse practitioners and clinicians um, is in helping to kind of bridge those gaps for access for teenagers to contraception if they need it? Well, That's a big question. That is a big question. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this just one more time, because I do think it's very, very important that like th these providers, um, healthcare providers who um, who take care of adolescents are, are the gatekeepers of contraceptive services. 
and their level of training and their willingness to provide full spectrum contraceptive care are prerequisites to increased access. Thank you. Naomi, do you have anything you'd like to add? Um, well, yeah, I think I think it's really important to figure out any ways that teens can get this access. And I also think it's important for providers in states where teens could not have access to contraception without rental okay to really develop ways to talk to parents about this. Um, and I, I just remember back to, you know, before I became a nurse practitioner, I was a, a floating, I was, you know, I was kind of floating at uh, juvenile hall, which is, you know, the uh, basically the juvenile jail in San Francisco at the time. And, um, and we had a clinic and, you know, and we, um, so I was helping out in the clinic and I heard this uh, adolescent medicine fellow who was rotating through the clinic and who had uh, one of his patients in his continuity clinic was actually incarcerated at juvenile hall and wanted to go on birth control. Um, and even though she could have done that without her parents' permission, she really wanted her mother to know. And I heard him having this conversation with her mother. Um, say, you know, obviously, you know, you know, the mother, you know, I only heard his side. But he was going, yes, I agree with you. I think she's too young to have sex too. But that's not your decision. It's not my decision. She's already made that decision. So what are we going to do to protect her from in that decision? Um, so I, I, I think, you know, because he had a relationship with a parent, already, you know, as a doctor outside, he could do that, he could be a little more forceful, but I think it's up to us to develop scripts and ways to talk to parents about, you know, what's going on. Um, and I think, you, you know, um, there's just been so many attacks, for example, on um, the ability of young people who are non-binary and trans for getting the kind of gender affirming care they need. You know, one thing that we could provide even in states where uh, they're not allowed to access cross-gender hormones is for uh, trans and non-binary folks with a uterus who are really distressed by having their periods. We can provide contraceptive methods that will essentially shut down their periods or greatly diminish them. And, you know, that can be a really life-saving gender-affirming treatment, but it is a contraceptive treatment. And it may be in states where parents are really supportive of their kids but can't get them the care, that's one thing they could do. Great. Thank you, Naomi. Um, so, Erin, I wanted to turn, Naomi has shared with me that you have two really great initiatives. One is called the Senior Send-Off, and then the other is I heard you have LARC doulas. Can you tell us about those programs? They sound really exciting and maybe a way to kind of help with everything we've been talking about today. Yeah, sure, sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, so at our school-based health centers at La Clinica, um, we really try to look at the entry point and the exit point of a student's life, especially within a high school. We, when they first come to the schools in ninth grade, we do something called an adolescent screening visit, where we essentially just screen them for depression and drug use and, um, you know, birth control, things like that, and see if they need any of our services. Um, and it's wonderful and most of it's negative, meaning like very, they're very benign visits and then we just really use it as a way to sort of educate our students. And we found that like we needed an exit point as well. So we um, decided to sort of um, offer these visits to all of our patients who are graduating seniors um, and who had used our contraceptive services at our clinics. 
Um, and we talked about their, their plans for graduation. We tried to um, reduce the, the fragmentation of healthcare. As they leave, how do we connect them to their next place where they're going to be able to access reproductive health? And, um, you know, in the last two or three years, unfortunately, these, um, this conversation has changed since the fall of Roe v. Wade. So in Oakland, California, we have a lot of high school graduating seniors who um, sometimes decide to go to um, historically black colleges and universities in states with very different legal landscape for abortion. And um, our conversations have morphed a lot since this decision. And now we've talked a lot about um, what their um, access is going to be going forward as they go to college. And they're generally floored by the fact that they cannot receive an abortion in the state that they're going to be living in for the next four years legally. Um, and, you know, the question of, you know, contraceptive access is really, um, you know, huge in their minds. So, you know, we talk about how to bridge these gaps with them. And um, something that has come up with some of them is that um, they want a long acting method at that point, if they don't have one already. Um, and so we talk a lot about um, LARCs at that point, about Nexplanons and IUDs, that essentially can bridge their whole college career until they either come back or, you know, find another place to land post-college. But it, it definitely can help them feel empowered about having some reproductive um, autonomy in states that don't support that. That's great. Yeah. So do you provide those services at the school-based health center? Oh, yes. Yeah. So we, we, we provide all of those services um, at our school-based health center. Um, and we have not only that, but um, if you want to talk a little bit about doulas now, we actually um, spent a lot of time training and developing a curriculum for LARC doulas within our, um, within our school-based health centers. Um, and this, you know, I think this framework comes from um, a lot of research. There was a, a paper actually came out a couple of years ago at Boston's Children's Hospital in Cambridge, entitled Will It Hurt? Um, and it looked at pre-procedural anxiety as a component to the LARC placement experience. Mm -hmm. And they found that adolescents and young adults um, have consistently identified pre-procedural anxiety and fear of a painful procedure as their largest barrier to LARC use. And um, this was true both for Nexplanons and IUDs, even though those are very, very different procedures, the fear was essentially the same, which, you know, is sort of astounding from a provider point of view, but it speaks to, you know, how much this plays a role in a teen's life. Um, and, you know, we really firmly believe that fear should not play a role as teenagers consider their contraceptive options. So um, we developed a curriculum to improve this experience and it directly targets anxiety. Um, and it ranges everything from counseling about what to expect during the insertion procedures. Um, we also teach providers um, to use trauma-informed language during procedures. So um, an example of this is, you know, I, when I train providers um, on IEDs, um, I, I tell them to model consent um, and to elevate a patient's autonomy. So to use words like, you know, before I start, I want you to know that you are in control of the pace today. If you want me to slow down, 
repeat myself or explain anything more, I will. Or if at any point you want me to stop the procedure, I will. To say that before, while the patient is dressed, before there's a before we start the procedure and really to a model consent. Um, and we also create spaces for non-pharmacological support with our LARC doulas and some of these modalities. And I know this is California, but I think that this, you can more broadly bring this into a lot of places. Um, it includes aromatherapy. Um, we do some diaphragmatic breathing. Um, we do heat and cold therapy. Um, you know, the heat therapy we use um, just for cramping. The cold therapy is sometimes like for we have an electric fan if patient is sort of sweating or feeling hot. Um, we play music. We do some acupressure. Um, and, you know, we define a LARC doula um, as a non-clinical role whose focus is on supporting the patient both emotionally and physically. And these, this is usually integrated within our clinic. So our LARC doulas are our, our medical assistants sometimes who um, need to chaperone a procedure anyway, mm -hmm. or they are our health educators if a clinic is lucky enough to have one. Um, and we really allow them to, you know, empower the patient to retain their sense of control and to, um, to make sure that the adolescent has a clear role that this is not something that's done to them, but that's done with them. Um, we, um, we also create LARC doula toolkits, so little boxes that essentially have all of these things in them. It has like IUD or implant models. It has lavender eye pillows. It has squeeze stress squeeze balls. It has an electric fan and things like that. And that also helps to just integrate this into our practice. You just get out the box, come into the room, put on some music, and then um, get started. That's really amazing. That That is really amazing. I can imagine that teenagers would really love that. And I could see a lot of those kind of um, therapies being used for other anxiety provoking um, situations, right? Even coping, going off to college, right? And being sick for the first time or, you know, having terrible menstrual cramps or it's, a you know, a really great model for self-care and kind of looking at things beyond, you know, medications or other things. So congratulations. That's amazing. The other thing I was thinking as an educator myself is, wow, what an amazing opportunity for nurse practitioner students when they're in their training to volunteer to do that at yes. clinics or other places. Have you thought yeah. of that at all? Could we help you with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, I have used students who've been in practice with me as the, as the doula. So I, you know, to be honest, I didn't, I, I was only in clinic once a week. And so I didn't actually get the mentoring to insert IUDs, but I did Nexplanon actually. Um, Aaron mentored me through the Nexplanon um, after my training. And so I used students who are with me um, as doulas. Um, and we actually do offer LARC training to all of our nurse practitioner students. Uh, at least we did before the pandemic. I don't know how much it's picked up now, but we offered, you know, we offer that. And so some of my students had had the training and so they were LARC doulas for me with Nexplanon and then I was a doula for them That's when really they were amazing. doing it. Yeah. I mean, obviously I was watching them, but, but I also had that role and it's just, it's really cool because, um, you know, the, it's such a great experience for the teenager. And then, you know, sometimes I don't know how much I would do this for an IUD, but for the next one on, if they have a friend with them, we let the friend come in 
and sit with them. And, you know, the friend is also seeing that this is like the only thing, you know, it's, it's such a painless procedure. Um, and, you know, not exactly the same for an IUD, but, but it is really, it, it's such an amazing atmosphere. It just feels so nice in the room. It feels um, like spa treatment. Like it feels like the teenagers must really feel as though they're being taken care of well. Yeah. And I would imagine for the clinician too, it relieves some of that stress, right? Like so you have somebody else who's really helping you and is super focused on the patient while you're a little bit more focused on the procedure that you're you're doing, so you're doing it well and doing it quickly. Um, I, I can just see so many benefits to everybody who's in the room and the clinic and you know, you know, word of mouth is everything with teenagers. So I can imagine that having positive experiences really expands access by word of mouth. And, you know, Aaron's really cool. Her name was really cool. Like, go see them if you want to have um, a lark put in. Um, I would also add, like to add that I think even the fear of getting depo, right? Teenagers don't love shots, right? And no. they often have had really bad experiences as little kids being held and having multiple sh shots at the same time. So, you know, providers just even paying attention to if they're getting depo or if they're getting any of their immunizations that, you know, they had, a, they may have had a little bit of trauma, right. Um, with those previous experiences and we can make them better. So maybe even some of this doula support would be helpful in those areas as well. That's exactly right. I actually yeah. had a very humbling experience the other day where I, I was um, vaccinating a, a new immigrant who was catching up on his vaccine and needed like six or seven vaccines to continue oh. in school. And I had just trained my medical assistant on, on, on Lark Dooling and she had been helping me with that. And then we we swapped roles. So she gave six or seven of the vaccines and I was the Lark Doula for that <laughs> visit. And it was really a beautiful um way to turn medicine on its head and, and yeah. really act as the other. And I agree, the other piece of this is as I advocate for more pediatricians and more primary care um, clinicians um, to do, to, to learn how to do Nexplanons and IUDs as you're learning and maybe perhaps as you have a lower amount of volume or if not feeling as, you know, as, as confident or as you're learning, it is lovely to have someone else in the room who is responsible for basically the um, top half of the patient. And then you can just really focus on the technical aspects of the procedure and making sure that you're working on that and, and, and focused completely. It's, it's a lovely way to sort of reduce your stress too. So that's absolutely true, Allison. So I, I also wanted to, can I just, um, I wanted to actually um, give additional props to, to Aaron because um, in addition to championing all of this stuff, she actually has mentored and trained pretty much every school-based health center provider um, who, you know, because we, we, you go to the required trainings for IUDs and you go to trainings for Nexplanon, but that doesn't mean that you feel confident. So she actually mentors people and either comes to our clinic or we go to her clinic and really mentors us until we feel comfortable doing this on our own. And I think it's crucial if you want to expand the access of LARCs in a clinic to have champions like Erin who are willing to kind of train and mentor people, you know, beyond their initial required um, procedure training. That's great. Erin, have you thought about writing this up to share this more widely with providers? Uh, we actually just did. We just Yay! were publishing a, a LARC a a LARC doula toolkit with UCSF and Bixby Center of Reproductive Health. Um, and it should be coming out on their website imminently this year in the next few months. Um, 
And also, they UCSF and Bixby, they have a, an IUD um, protocol that we use pretty extensively as a way to train clinicians. And they are having a whole section on special uh, that they've added this year in 2024 um, regarding special or considerations for special populations. And that looks at adolescents and young adults and really talks about um, looking at pre-procedural anxiety and how we can address this and talks a little bit about our LARC doula toolkit. Well, I, I'm looking forward to seeing the toolkit. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I wanna ask you both, if you could from today's conversation, what is one key takeaway um, you would like clinicians to have from our conversation? I'm going to go back to training. <laughs> so um, especially coming out of um, the pandemic, um, the Clinical Training Center for Sexual and Reproductive Health, um, I think the acronym is CTCSRH, um, as has a new and improved website. They have um, evidence-based clinical training for providers um, on site and virtually for Nexplanons and IUDs. And they have a, a really comprehensive set of external resources um, for LARCs um, called LARC Link um, that are just wonderful ways for you to um, increase your training. So I guess your message is that all clinicians can do this and you're encouraging yes. them to do this, right? Regardless of volume. Absolutely. That's great. And how about you, Naomi? So I guess I would say the takeaway for me is to really listen to your patients and really be you know, use cultural humility, be culturally humble about what their wants, desires are for reproductive health care or not, and what their concerns are, and how it fits into their whole lives. Right. And not okay. just go in with your agenda. Right. So can you provide one clinical pearl also for clinicians about any of the topics we've talked today, that we've talked about today? I think a clinical pearl that I can I can um, start with is really just not to make any assumptions um, and to start these conversations early and to normalize the conversations. Um, so um, have these conversations. Teach um, your teenagers, even your young teenagers, what their um, what the confidentiality laws are what their um, rights are and what kind of um, healthcare they should have um, when they're young and tell them how to empower them, how to access healthcare on their own. Thank you, Erin. Naomi? Yeah, well, I would say um, using motivational interviewing skills, really, you know, to really ask folks, you know, what are their goals? What are their dreams? How do they want to get there? How might reproductive health care or contraception fit into that picture? Um, and um, yeah, and also, you know, not make assumptions. Allison, can I have one more clinical pearl? I just want to say, as a provider in a high school um, health center, too often I hear from my patients that they're not able to talk about contraceptive with their pediatric primary care provider because their parent is in the room. So get the parent out of the room and have these conversations. Okay, that's great. 
I think I also heard Naomi say too that one other clinical pearl potentially could be that parents can be, really be allies, right, in in helping teenagers with contraception. That they're not, we're, we're not excluding them all. Um, Absolutely, and it's and again, it's this. I actually think this is an opportunity to educate parents as well, right? I think we start all of our well childs with parents in the room to talk about the strengths and not the deficits of teenagers, and to also empower parents to understand that their kids have some autonomy in this in this space and what those laws are and then to really normalize it and say we do this with all of our teenagers to help them um reduce their risk and you know having those conversations with parents can be really empowering for parents who are struggling at this time with their teenagers um, and then for providers to separately be able to offer that same kind of um, offer for autonomy is, is really empowering. And also just encouraging, I think, parents to have their conversations about expectations or how they're going to, you know, enable them to interact more uh, with the healthcare system and that kind of thing, that they can really be a great asset to helping teenagers kind of make that tra transition to being more autonomous. They there's a lot to learn. Like they don't got to kind yes. of get out at the end of all of this and be able to do this. Um, many adults struggle with the healthcare system that we have, right? So that we really need to spend a lot of time helping them learn how to be independent and to put all those tools in their toolbox, so to speak, so that when they graduate from high school or they graduate from adolescent related services and they go on to adult services or college services, that they have some skills. Um, and how they can help themselves and they don't end up kind of dropping out of the healthcare system altogether um, because it's frustrating or they don't know how to ask for contraception or an appointment or other things. Yeah, great. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. You're so welcome. Thank you, Allison. Elevating the voice, we really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for joining me for this episode of Protected Adolescence and Contraception, a Teen Peds Talks podcast series brought to you by the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. Join us again next time for another conversation about this important topic.